Our keynote speaker is Dr. Miroslav Wolf, who is the Henry B. Wright Professor of Theology at Yale Divinity School and director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Dr. Miroslav Wolf was educated in his native Croatia, the United States, and Germany. He earned doctoral and postdoctoral degrees with highest honors from the University of Tübingen, Germany. He has written or edited more than 20 books and over 90 scholarly articles. His most significant books include Exclusion and Embrace, After Our Likeness, in which he explores the Trinitarian nature of ecclesial community, Allah, a Christian response on whether Muslims and Christians have a common God, and a public faith on how followers of Christ should serve the common good. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, which won the 2002 Grawmeyer Award in Religion, Wolf argues that exclusion of people who are alien or different is among the most intractable problems in the world today. He writes, it may not be too much to claim that the future of our world will depend on how we deal with identity and difference. The issue is urgent. The ghettos and battlefields throughout the world, in the living rooms and in inner cities or on the mountain ranges, testify indisputably of its importance. Dr. Wolf has given many prestigious lectureships including the Dudlein Lecture at Harvard, the Chavez Lectures in Oxford, the Waldenstrom Lectures in Stockholm, and the Gray Lectures at Duke University. We are grateful that he has graciously accepted our invitation to be the keynote speaker at Princeton Seminary's alumni reunion, where the title of his lecture is Trust and Trustworthiness. Without further delay, friends, please join me in welcoming Dr. Miroslav Wolf. I'm delighted to be back uh, here at uh, Princeton. And um, with this group in particular, Princeton has been such a significant place for theological education and theological education, both in academia and, for me personally, more importantly, in the ministry. My father was a minister, and he was always uh, disappointed, a little bit disappointed, that I didn't quite follow fully in his, uh, in his footsteps, that I became a mere professor. Uh, <laughs> and even when I was hired at Yale, that did not change his, uh, his opinion, to his credit. And uh, actually, I agree with him. Uh, I believe that theologians are servants, uh, servants of the people of God, servants of the, of the world in the sense, but more indirectly than are the ministers. And so my hat uh, always goes to ministers. Uh, I have had great admiration for the work that my father and my mother together have done as ministers. And so I know the challenges and admire people who, uh, who do it. So the topic, uh, my topic today is trust uh, and trustworthiness. Actually, for myself, I've added another word to, to it to make it Trinitarian, which is trust, trustworthiness, and suspicion. 
Um, uh, otherwise, it might look too rosy, <laughs> what I am uh, about to, uh, to talk to you. And obviously, the background uh, is uh, our uh, current uh, political, uh, political moment, uh, lack of trust in our major institutions, and lack of trustworthiness uh, primarily manifested in the sense of uh, absence or lack of truthfulness. Uh, and uh, these kinds of issues, uh, I think, in the forefront of attention of, uh, of many. And it's worth doing some work, theological work, to, uh, to explore them. I think one of the great, as an introductory comment, one of the great questions that many are facing is a very, very simple question. And that question is, why should I be for truth if truth is against me? Um, how do I construe my relationship to the truth when truth ends up being hurtful to the aspiration, to the goals, to power exertion that I uh, have or want to, uh, want to undertake? And it's interesting enough, uh, I, I think, my background for what I'm going to say is not just the, the kind of uh, on, the, on the more, uh, let's call it for lack of a better term, though that's a wrong term in many ways, on conservative side of, of the spectrum, kind of uh, lack of uh, commitment to, to truthfulness, but also on the progressive side, uh, you can see a kind of fascination with, um, uh, well, on the one hand, it was the sense of uh, the, the kind of Foucault-influenced notion that truth is uh, a simple a way of exerting certain kind of social, social power, which it is, but that shouldn't be the whole story of it. And then plus, something like a profound suspicion and uh, kind of all mistrust of trust that one finds on the other side especially among the social critics sometimes. Uh, I think that needs to be queried. So on both sides, uh, I'm going to be equal opportunity uh, offender. <laughs> um, but let me say a few words. Obviously, it's a huge topic. And what I'm going to do is uh, just sketch and make a few comments about the relationship between trust, trustworthiness, suspicion, and then narrate a story of Christ as a story of uh, trustworthiness, uh, entrusting oneself to God and trustworthiness uh, of, of God. Um, that's only half of the story or half of the lecture that I can give. I have about uh, 40 pages here. Um, and the second half uh, would be a, a, about uh, kind of how does one generate trustworthiness? What, uh, how does one generate trustworthiness in ourselves as to generate it, excuse me, in the society at large? So um, with, with this, I will begin. Uh, what matters to human beings, whatever matters to human beings, trust is the atmosphere in which it thrives. Oops, that's not so good. <laughs> Uh, the writer of this um, statement, Cicela Bock, uh, exaggerated, but not by much. Newborns, we know, cannot develop into psychologically healthy children and adults without dependable relationship to trustworthy primary caregivers, something that we might describe as proto-trust. Uh, Germans have a word for it called Urvertrauen. 
their stable relation to themselves, their ability to project themselves into the future, their capacity to orient themselves in social and natural environments, they all depend on trust. Indeed, absence of trust erodes the very physical health of newborns. That's what studies show us. Without their implicit prototrust being justified, newborns do not become men and women. Ontogenetically, trust is basic to us. Now, we cannot leave trust behind once we have developed into adulthood the way we normally leave behind the nursing breast, the stroller, the parental home. As we grow, our ability to control our environments increases, but the need to trust remains. If things go well, the implicit, blind, and total trust of a newborn will gradually give way to the conscience, informed, and mostly partial trust of a child and an adult, but trust itself will not be abandoned. Indeed, a person who did not trust at all would strike us as inhuman. We're fragile, we're temporal, we're dependent beings, and so we must trust others in order to be able to live and to flourish. We need help in creating, in guarding, in looking after things that matter us, to us the most. All economic interactions between people, particularly those carried over a period of time, all of them involve some measure of trust. All familial relations involve measure of trust. All educational interaction do so. All political interaction, imagine uh, family, imagine economy, imagine politics, uh, imagine medicine, imagine law without trust. You can't imagine it. It would collapse, actually. Trust is good, but control is better. <laughs> you know who said that? Lenin. <laughs> Vladimir Ilyich uh, Lenin uh, said that. <laughs> But he puts his things on, on their head. Social psychologists and political theorists have persuasively argued, especially in recent decades, that it is the other way around. Control is OK, but trust is better. Effective control takes too much time and energy. Those of you who are in academia know bureaucracy is killing us, right? And this bureaucracy partly is about control, right? Uh, and uh, the con effective control takes a lot of time and energy. And you're still left with the puzzle, who controls the controllers? <laughs> that was uh, Lenin's problem, actually, right? Life tends to be better in high-trust societies, like Denmark, uh, then in low-trust societies like Central African Republic. Uh, so they have whole studies that are done on the high-trust, low-trust uh, societies. It is not just that every meal we take requires some measure of trust in, order, uh, in other people, whether they are families, merchants, cooks, and food or food tasters. In addition, 
to these interpersonal and social forms of trust, there's something like existential trust. And by that I mean, uh, well, the fact of my living, the fact of my making a step in the morning out of my bed involves certain kind of at least minimal trust that the foot will find something that's stable underneath and that I would be able to, to walk. But maybe we can put aside those kinds of obvious forms of, uh, of trust and uh, things that for things that we can take for granted, like that the sun is going to rise in the morning and so forth. But for anything in life that we undertake, any undertaking of significance, to study for an exam at the end of semester, or if I am in horticulture to tin shoots on my vines in June, I must trust that it's worth investing time and effort into the project and that the project is not doomed to failure. More importantly, I think, to undertake the grand project of living itself. I need trust. I need to trust both that in the face of widespread suffering and inevitable death, life is in fact worth living, and that a particular vision of life that I am, have embraced, vision of flourishing life, will not ultimately end in disappointment over the wasteland of my existence. I was sitting this morning and I was thinking, uh, at one, uh, one where, I don't know where I was, I made the comment uh, how, how, uh, how in fact we can live our lives at the end, discover that we have wasted our lives, that we have failed. There was a kind of a gas silence. It's almost like I said uh, in, in, in um, um, uh, I don't know, some great um, social faux pas. Uh, I have made, uh, that, that, that one can actually fail in one's life. It's, and I thought then, well, that seems like a, this, is a, this is the hell for, the, for people who, who don't believe in hell after death, right? That would be hell, right? Your existence failed at the end of life. Now, how we th talk about this may be an interesting question to, to pursue, but that there is something like that. Um, might be an interesting proposition to explore. Finally, there's something like ultimate trust, often submerged at the uh, foundation of the way of life, uh, that reality is set in such a way that actually we will not end up losers, that we will end up fulfillment, that my living according to a moral precepts and my happiness, to use terms from Immanuel Kant, will ultimately coincide. Or, or perhaps this is a trust that the arc of history is bent toward justice and the uh, world uh, in the future will look better than it looks today. Those, all these forms of trust are fundamental to us, and as you could, could see, all of them are tied with the idea of fragility, with the idea of insufficiency of individual lives, with the idea that we are live in temporal, uh, our existence is a tempora temporarily defined. We live in time. To trust is to risk. When we trust, we accept vulnerability to another's possible, but not expected ill will. 
That's why we rarely trust immediately and totally. Before we trust, we try to assess whether it is wise to do so, whether we ought to make the risk of entrusting to others something that matters profoundly to us. To live, we have to trust, so we cannot eliminate risk that comes with it. But to survive and thrive, we cannot have our trust, important trust, betrayed. That's where suspicion comes in. Now, there's something that the great dictators and some modern philosophers have in common. And what they have in common is that they want to live in the world without trust, so they doubt everything and they doubt everyone. Lenin, right? Control. Dictators are suspicious of everyone. They go to great lengths to try to find out what's happening in the homes and in the hearts of those over whom they rule so that they can fully know and fully control them. Some modern philosophers are suspicious of all claims to knowledge, so they doubt everything that can be doubted, unmasking one pretender to knowledge after another. But neither group can achieve their goal of trustless world. The dictators cannot control everyone and everything, and the philosophers cannot achieve the certainty of indubitable knowledge. Suspicion and doubt cannot eliminate trust, if for no other reason than that all suspicion and all doubt rest on some kind of trust. Properly exercised suspicion and doubt do not aim to make trust superfluous, which is a goal that is both impossible and undesirable. Instead, they aim to identify who is worthy to be trusted. That's the goal of suspicion. You can put it this way. First come trust, then comes suspicion. In the order of importance in our lives, trust is more basic, and so suspicion is a means to nurturing valid forms of trust rather than somehow suspicion being <laughs> fundamental. As infants, we trust primary caregivers unthematically, implicitly, and totally. We learn suspicion when our naive trust has been betrayed. And if we are wise as adults, we don't let suspicion win the day and eclipse trust. For though suspicion may save us from perishing, it will itself not make us flourish. Given our dependency, fragility, temporality, to flourish we need to trust, learn to trust well. Suspicion is a means to that end. For we need some assurance that what we trust is in fact trustworthy. The weak, those who live in the world which they haven't designed and which hasn't been designed with their interest in view, have most stake in suspicion. Lacking in power, they have little control over the social and natural environments on which they depend. Hence, they're forced to trust. But just because they lack in power, they're also highly vulnerable to betrayals of trust. They lose most when betrayed and often have no way of holding to account those who have betrayed them. That's very often in the corrupt societies. Uh, if, you, if you read reports about them, that's one of the most important uh, issues. You have no way of holding accountable when the trust is betrayed. And of course, then, you're unable uh, to trust at all. 
Uh, in other words, your risk in trusting is too great, and there's no redress if you have uh, made, made the misstep. So healthy suspicion, then, is not an enemy of trust, but it's servant, a tool of identifying what can count, what we can count on to be trustworthy. In other words, you can put it this way, that trust, proper trust, is a function of trustworthiness. And so the fundamental question that we are facing, actually, is how to generate trustworthiness. I know that some of the conservative political philosophers, they're all into trust, right? I'm all into trustworthiness, <laughs> right? Because trustworthiness is a condition of possibility of trust, trust being a positive good, but it depends on trustworthiness of uh, folks or institutions. The problem of trust is largely a problem of trustworthiness. We trust not because we exert our will and decide to trust. In fact, we cannot accept at will if somebody tells us, trust me. We trust because we deem the object of our trust trustworthy. Parents make their children trust, <clears throat> trust them not by telling them to trust, or for that matter, by telling them that they, the parents, are trustworthy, but by being trustworthy. Crooks and charlatans lure the unsuspecting into trusting them. Just Call Saul, have you watched the? Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Just Call Saul is, uh, is a very good example of uh, importance of trust in the whole, whole series of those uh, in interactions. Um, now, uh, Saul Goodman is, is, is a kind of very, very complicated uh, charlatan, right? Uh, and very interesting in many ways. But crooks and charlatans lure the unsuspecting into trusting them by dissimulating trustworthiness. In some, we come to believe that someone is trustworthy. If we come to believe that someone is trustworthy, we will trust them. Or rather, we trust them in the main in which we find them as trustworthy. Now, what does it take to be trustworthy? Who do we trust? Well, um, features of person who is trustworthy, those are trustworthy who are competent with regard to things that we want to entrust them. I want a plumber who knows how to do the plumbing job. I can trust it, right? And, uh, two, who are well disposed toward us, or at least not ill disposed toward us, and three, not likely to lose competency or to change their disposition toward us. Because that can happen as well, right? For Christians, the ideal case of a trustworthy person is God, omnicompetent and all-loving and utterly stable in character. All trust and trustworthiness are bound, is bound up with God. God is the creator and the sustainer of the worlds, the one who guides history and promises the world's salvation and fulfillment. This is who God claims to be, faithful to God's divine character and faithful to the world. But can we trust that claim? Indeed, does the actual state of the world, the dashed hopes of humans and groanings of all creatures, does this claim, does this reality, the state of the world, not falsify the claim? Must we not say that God either doesn't exist or isn't to be trusted at all? 
In some ways, you can say this is Job's question. Uh, one way to look at Job is, uh, Job's question is, can Job be trusted? But from Job's perspective is, can God be trusted? Right? So the kind of two trusts are at play in this, this uh, extraordinary book. Now, the answer, I think, in the Christian tradition to these questions <clears throat> comes from the story of Jesus Christ, the one who trusted in God, the one who calls humanity to trust him, meaning Jesus, and emulate in his own trust, emulate him, meaning Jesus, in his own trust, as well in, as in his trustworthiness. And that's what I want to explore with you. Uh, a little bit uh, right now, Jesus' trust in God and manifestation of God's trustworthiness. Um, next lecture would have been um, trust in Jesus and in his own trustworthiness uh, as uh, to complete the circle. So you're going to go halfway with me, and then you, you, you'll fill in the, the, um, what's left out. <clears throat> so let's look at the story of Jesus. Now, we can read the entire story of Jesus Christ as a story of trust and of trustworthiness. The story of a struggle for trust in God and a story of assurance in God's trustworthiness. This may be too strong of a claim given that neither Jesus himself nor the gospel writers mentions explicitly Jesus' trust. Neither Jesus nor the gospel writers themselves. Applied to Jesus, the word only occurs once in the Gospels, if I've counted it rightly. And that's in the mouth of those who mocked Jesus. So let's go to those mockers of Jesus. People tend to mock those who puff themselves up into importance, but are in fact nobodies, and they mock those who openly place trust in someone powerful who turns out not to want to help. As Jesus was dying on the cross, people mocked him in both of these ways. He claimed to be God's son, but instead of basking in power and glory, he was hanging on the cross, wrecked by pain and utterly powerless. The scoffers zeroed in on the heart of his obvious failure, his foolishly misplaced trust, or his seemingly foolishly misplaced trust. Here's what I said. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to, for he said, I'm God's son. Were the scoffers right? The significance of Jesus past his death, significance of Jesus for us, is decided on whether he was justified in trusting God. According to the Gospels, Jesus did not simply arrogate to himself the title Son of God, as the scoffers claimed. God pronounced him to be God, pronounced him to be God's Son. After John baptized Jesus at the Jordan, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove alighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, the scoffers on the cross assumed 
A basic principle of family relations. Sons ought to be able to trust their fathers to help them to succeed and be for them in the time of their great need. Now, so did Satan in his temptation of Jesus. Because immediately after baptism uh, come temptation in the wilderness, and these temptations are formulated in the following way. If you are the Son of God, which is exactly what God said uh, at the baptismal scene, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. Jesus' disciples, too, had a deeply ingrained expectation that his being God's Son, Jesus' being God's Son, would guarantee immunity from failure. Jesus knew otherwise. After the heavenly voice declared for the second time that Jesus was God's beloved son, this time in the presence of three of his disciples, Jesus had to explain to them that being God's beloved son and suffering ingloriously aren't opposed to each other. Now, that second declaration happens at the Mount of Transfiguration. Right. So, and there Jesus explicates suffering and sonship are not in opposition to one another. Now, why did he explain that or how, what, what was the background of this explanation? Well, there's a well-established biblical pattern and uh, well-known uh, Hebrew Bible scholar John Levinson has uh, described it in his book, uh, Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son. And that pattern was at play in Jesus' life. The pattern is especially clearly visible in the stories about the sons of patriarchs in the Hebrew Bible. Jacob, Isaac's favorite son, had to flee from the murderous range of his brother. Joseph, Jacob's favorite son, was sold into slavery by his own brothers. But before they were Joseph and Jacob, there was Isaac. He was born to Abraham and Sarah miraculously in their old age. He was to be the instrument of God's promise that Abraham would be blessed and with innumerable progeny and that he would be a blessing to nations. Yet in obedience to God's command, Abraham journeyed for three days to Mount Moriah, bound Isaac on an altar and raised his knife to sacrifice his beloved son. One of these stories of uh, horror in the Bible. Now, we think of it in this way and think less of the story of Jesus in that way. But in a way, we may think of roughly the three years of Jesus' public ministry as a long and meandering journey to his own Mount Moriah. Like Isaac, in some of the rabbinical interpretations of the story, Jesus was not only aware of the suffering, by the way, um, some of the rabbinical interp interpretations of the story of uh, Abraham and Isaac uh, say that uh, have Isaac being grown up and uh, completely aware, not aware of what's coming and embracing uh, his father's uh, will. Um, in Christian uh, renderings, uh, he, he's, a, he's a relatively small, uh, unsuspecting uh, boy. <clears throat> 
Jesus was not only aware of the suffering that was coming upon him, he also embraced it. His father's will, the divine must that pressed against his life, and his own will, both of those things aligned. It was a, understandably that that alignment was sometimes very tense and hesitant, but it was alignment nonetheless. Just before he was captured and kill, killed, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Now, Jesus had predicted his resurrection. Some kind of resurrection was patterned on the experience of ancient beloved sons. Their suffering was followed by vindication. Isaac was saved by an angel. Jacob became progenitor of the nation of Israel. And Joseph saved Jacob's clan from being wiped out by famine. Yet the scoffing of the political and religious rulers and the ordinary people seemed to have gotten to Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. That's one way of reading that story of crucifixion, that the scoffing has gotten to Jesus. Even the sun was hiding its face from him as the darkness enveloped the land, leaving him utterly alone with his shame and pain. Just before he died, Jesus cried out the famous cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No angel showed up to rescue him. Why am I, who have done your will my entire life, now utterly alone? Now, everybody who does the will of God, in contemporary context, everybody who speaks the truth may easily find themselves in situation analogous to the one that's being described here. Why am I doing the right thing? But just because I'm doing the right thing, I am undergoing suffering. And by the way, if one, this is a footnote to this, uh, to this lecture, but if, if you look at the New Testament accounts of suffering, Paul is probably the best, uh, best example. Uh, he haven't written more on suffering than any other book except the book of Job. Um, if you look at those, those accounts, uh, the fundamental problem of suffering is not prob uh, problem of suffering which we of which we generally speak, which is our natural bodies breaking down or uh, um, things happening to us in the world, natural catastrophes uh, or things of that sort. His primary uh, emphasis was on suffering persecution. And suffering persecution was suffering on account of being who you were supposed to be. <laughs> Right, that's, that's, the, that's the basic idea. You may, you may be suspicious of that, uh, of that claim, but that is the basic perspective. No, I'm not, he was less worried about thorn in his flesh. He was worried, or not worried, he thematized that, explicated the suffering that came to him as a function of his work as an apostle, as a function of being the follower of Jesus Christ. And so it is throughout New Testament, and this is, almost a paradigmatically difficult case of suffering because you're suffering for doing what is right. <laughs> Not just suffering and somebody's failing to rescue you, but rather you're suffering on account of being obedient to what is right. So this is not Job's suffering. Job's suffering was different, right? He acted rightly, but he didn't suffer because he acted rightly. 
he suffered as a test of whether he would continue to suffer, to, to do rightly, uh, even if he weren't blessed. So you have similar situation, obviously, here in Jesus' uh, case. Yet even in his abandonment, Jesus had not given up on God and held on trust in God, though flooded with dread, um, uh, there's a kind of broken trust in some way. One way to read this story is, is to say, uh, and uh, I haven't checked with my New Testament uh, colleagues to see whether that, that uh, makes sense, but uh, uh, Jesus' uh, cry of the religion comes at the beginning of the last three hours of his life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then you have a three hours, according to Matthew's gospel, they have three hours of darkness. You must imagine the, the, the hours of darkness, even sun doesn't like me, right? Uh, I am utterly, and more importantly, I am completely enveloped in darkness. I am utterly, utterly alone, right? The whole connection that light creates between other human beings and me, that is broken down in the, in the darkness, right? So he suffers in the darkness, and then he cries again. And one way to interpret his cry again, he cries the same words again. <laughs> Right, uh, that, uh, and I tend to think that that's that's what uh, that's what Matthew at least wants to wants to suggest. But if that's the case, then his very last words on the cross are abandoned. Why have you abandoned me? Abandoned me is a single <laughs> word, and abandoned is the last one. Right. So you may you may see the. Uh, kind of my God, uh, remnants of trust are still there, almost holding on to them uh, to the bitter, bitter end, but they're just about to slip out of our grip. And the last word that is said is, I'm abandoned. Right? He's dead, and he's finished. Trust betrayed. That's the fundamental question, right? Uh, the scoffers have proven to be right. At that moment, um, Evangelist Matthew writes, the curtain, at that moment, he finished crying, abandoned. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were op opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. At that moment, too, the sun's light dispelled the darkness. God had not abandoned him, the beloved son. God was with him in the dark until the dark cup was drunk to the end and then stepped in. The reader of the gospel knows. Though still hanging on the cross, Jesus, God's beloved son, will be resurrected. For at the symbolic level, the process which will culminate in an empty tomb started as soon as he breathed his last. In the death itself, the resurrection, I think, started. God proved to be trustworthy. God, Jesus' complete trust in God, his entrusting his entire life to God was justified. The soldiers who kept watch over crucified Jesus bore witness to this by exclaiming, truly, this man was God's son. His entire mission, his healing the sick, 
feeding the hungry. He's teaching about not worrying for food and clothing and about love for enemies. He's forgiving of sins and announcing the kingdom of God's reign. All of this was an act of trust predicated on God being trustworthy and crowning such a life with success rather than letting it end in failure. I don't think there's anything that could be more relevant in today's context than reflection on this kind of trust that Jesus displayed, which is also to say trust in the kind of life that he lived, implicit trust. Crucifixion and resurrection come at the end as a conclusion, culmination, <clears throat> and consequence of a particular kind of life he lived. <clears throat> I think today we're called in various domains, not just in the political moment of today, but in other arenas as well, to ask ourselves most deeply the question, is the kind of life that Jesus led worthy of our trust? Is it worthy to be a follower of Jesus Christ? I have more to, to read to you, <laughs> but I want to say something uh, also, <laughs> independently of my, my um, script here. Over the past two, three years, I've been teaching a course at, at Yale called um, Christ in Being Human or Christ in Flourishing, different titles it had over a period of time. And also a course called Christ in Modern Literature. <clears throat> and one of the things that struck me as I was teaching this course after many years of not doing Christology, not teaching on Christ, is, and I, I put it this way, that Christ has become increasingly a moral stranger in our culture. Not just in our culture, to my students. And then I started reflecting, I said, well, of course, of course he is. I get up and I go in front of the mirror, I think about how I'm gonna dress myself, and I have not a single word about how Jesus looked in the Gospels. It seems like he didn't give, a, he didn't care <laughs> about how he looked. It's, that's in contrast to some of the great uh, religious founders of religious traditions, where, where outward beauty and that kind of inner beauty of character seem to have been aligned. And that ends up picked up later in the, in the Christian tradition as well beautiful Jesus, right? <laughs> You've got to have Jesus beautiful in appearance as uh, Jesus is beautiful in the, in the soul, the kind of unity of the beauty. You don't have it there. Sex. As far as we can tell, he never had sex. What kind of man? <laughs> right. And you can, I can go down the line, for love of enemies, uh, um, uh, possessions, and so forth. And then you read the stories of Jesus, and you think this, this just this is not a it's not a life that's worth aspiring. Wow. 
It's like reading, uh, reading uh, Francis of Assisi. And if you have sanitized version of Francis of Assisi, then you think, oh, this is cool. He loves birds, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, you know, he was rich and now lives, uh, lives in poverty. But if he says, I'm married to my lady poverty. And then you ask the question, OK, is there any good to poverty? And scandal immediately breaks. There is no good in poverty. There is no good in suffering. Right? So I can go down the line of life of Christ and show how what incredible stranger he is to us. And uh, it came as a shock to me, and it shouldn't. Right now, I'm kind of uh, inoculated uh, to it. But it came originally as a shock because I grew up in the 70s, right? And at that time, the books were written. Uh, Church, no, but Jesus, yes. <laughs> Church was the problem. Right? Uh, Christ's followers were the, were the problem. Jesus was, uh, was an ideal that was being held up. I think it's, it's been reversed. Church is okay, <laughs> for the most part. But Jesus is the problem. <laughs> because ch church isn't following Jesus, right? Then, therefore, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't planning to say, <laughs> I wasn't planning to say any of this. <laughs> I, 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 I think, that I, 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 I'm told this is being live streamed. This is terrible. I, I, I'm, going, I'm going to hang <laughs> from some little cross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I think the, uh, obviously, the cross is the, the most extreme form in which the unacceptability of Jesus' life comes through. And there are plentiful theological and non-theological ways for us to inoculate ourselves from the scandal of the cross and of its claim on our lives. But the cross and the scandal of it is of a peace with the entire life. And that's the, that's the point. So the trust in uh, Jesus, <laughs> I think fundamentally is uh, not trust in my sweet little Jesus that when I die, I'm going to end up in, in heaven, or not even so much that my sins will be forgiven. That doesn't seem to be trust that's so difficult for us these days, because we don't think too much that uh, any person who wouldn't forgive us our sins will be considered to be a, a kind of, who do you think you are? I mean, uh, uh, we are weak and you know, and so forth. You should attend to us. You're God. Uh, uh, therefore, your job is to forgive our sins uh, as, as, it, uh, as it goes. So trust in that. I don't think we, we tend to have a problem with that. We'll love that stuff. But the trust in the way of life is a problem in trusting who he enacted and who he was is a fundamental problem for us. I think it's a fundamental problem of the Christianity, Western Christianity, today. Obviously, 
the issue of God's trust in God and issue of Jesus' suffering, Jesus, issue of suffering more broadly, uh, question of Jesus dying on the cross doesn't go away when we put it in the context of the larger story of Jesus and remind ourselves that it is this person in its, his entire story that we should follow. I think it becomes more difficult, right, in some ways, because demand is higher. In the case of Jesus, so it was in the case of Abraham, and I could have, uh, I could have run a story of trust of Abraham in the parallel lines, because there are two great figures of trust in the, uh, in the Bible, Abraham and, and Jesus. And in fact, I have it in my, my text here. God's question was, will Abraham, will Jesus trust? Abraham and Jesus' primary questions was, will God prove to be trustworthy? <laughs> right? And that question still remains. That, that's the big question of the story, and that's the big existential question of our lives. In Jesus' story, the justification of trust is strengthened because the foundation, its foundation is God's trustworthiness, and that foundation is laid bare in the Jesus story. If you recall, Abraham's story has three characters. It was Abraham, Isaac, and God. Uh, story of the gospel <clears throat> has two characters, Jesus and God. In the gospel, Joseph, uh, Abraham isn't leading Jesus to Golgotha, trusting in God. Rather, Jesus is both Isaac and Abraham. He receives the call to sacrifice, and he is the beloved son to be sacrificed. In the gospel story, God is both Abraham. God is both Abraham and God. God is leading his beloved son to the cross, and God is the one in whom the beloved son trusts. Notice the radical departure from the model of traditional child sacrifice. It was morally thought to be morally reprehensible in Israel and most of its history. In the gospel story, the father is not sacrificing the son to God for the father's and family's benefit, which is how sons were, or children were sacrificed. Instead, divine father is sacrificing the beloved divine son for humanity's benefit. In other words, in a Trinitarian event, the crucifixion. Apostle Paul picks up on this motif to motivate trust. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Like Abraham, God did not withhold his son. And with more reason than Abraham, human beings can trust God. In giving the beloved son, God gives God's own self, which is to say that God, the creator and the sustainer of the worlds, who calls into existence things that do not exist, that God gives utterly and loves without reservation. God can be entrusted with everything not just because God being God is omnicompetent, but because God being God is all loving as well, pursuing regard, 
with regard to humanity, no particular independent interest of God's own that isn't in the best interest of all of us. I think I want to end here.